Is that your dog or is that just a dog? It's my pugly Christmas sweater. <laughs> oh, pugly. I'll be here all day. Can't wait to see what you bring. <laughs> you know, on the, on the last podcast, you had some really dumb dad jokes, and I cut them out. <laughs> They're terrible. <laughs> it was at the end of the podcast, and it was just, I was like done editing. It wasn't because they were bad. I was just like, I don't want to edit all this, because then we got to show everybody laugh, and then we got to show the dumb jokes. And I was like, ah, I don't have time. But... If you want to add some today, I will happily add them in um, since you I'm, are here all day today. I think I'm enough of a spectacle right now. I think we're okay. <laughs> I've I branded like Santa for Truth and Legend, though. so I like it. You always got something <laughs> cooking. You know, uh, I'm very impulsive sometimes. Maybe we can talk about my latest impulse. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, boy. So you got to tell the audiences listening what you just showed everybody on YouTube. So on the last episode, we talked about, or maybe it was the one before. Anyway, in the past, we've talked about DaVinci Resolve. And Michael and Eric both had their little speed editors. And I was jealous. And I couldn't live without it. And so I had some points from Adorama. And I used them to buy myself a DaVinci what is this thing called? DaVinci Resolve Editor Keyboard. So I'm now an infant when editing videos now. It has taken me four times as long to do anything because I don't know what I'm doing. I will say playing with the little wheel, like this little thing, it does the same thing that you would do, but like just playing with this is so much fun. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, anyway, yeah. so that's my latest bad decision. Hold on. Before you go too far, you had Adorama points. What are Adorama points? I didn't know there was such a thing. Oh, well, so before I knew about precision, I would buy things from Adorama because you could be a VIP for some price and they would do two day shipping, you know, because I can't wait for anything in this world. And over the years, I bought a bunch of stuff on there, but I'm like so stingy. I'm like, oh, I got to keep my points because, you know, they're worth so much. So I've accumulated all these points because I am impulsive and buy things as we're finding out. And so I'm like, all right, let's just double down. I don't need these points because I'm not using Adorama much. And so I'm, I use the points to buy this. So yeah, it's oh, like a royalty yeah. program. Yeah. Maybe we yeah. need to talk to the boys down at uh, Precision and see if they can come up with their own loyalty right? program. Right. The Precision royalty points. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like it. I'm going to talk to them. Yeah, it's... Because um, they are good guys, and they can get all the same stuff, and they match the totally. prices with everybody. So it's not like you're... You know, you just got to go to somewhere you like. Right. Um, Eric, uh, I don't know. I heard some rumbling and grumbling from you yesterday because it's like, now I got to go move more snow. What's going uh, on up in Anchorage? Yeah, we've been getting snow after snow. It's been... Um, we're now at a record level for up to this date in the season. We've surpassed all the previous years on snowfall, which it won't set like a seasonal record yet because we got a ways to go. But yeah, we're we're pushing you know six eight inches every few days. Luckily, it stopped for the last couple of days, and I was able to get out and shoot some sheep yesterday, which was uh, solstice. So it was kind of nice to get out and actually see the sunshine on the shortest day of the year for us here. 
the sun's only like five degrees above horizon. So if you're out in the mountains, it barely gets over the tops of the mountains. But yeah, I had some really nice light. I think we're forecasted for another round of snow again. So it's been brutal, but it hasn't seemed to push owls out yet or anything. So I think there's still a lot of food for them, but just nonstop snow up here. That's cool. So did you wake up with a whole new lease on the year, knowing that every day is getting longer now? <laughs> yeah, three seconds. I felt it. <laughs> had to set my alarm a second and a half early today. <laughs> it's tough getting up. You know what I'm finding about Alaskans? Or No, what I'm find, finding out about Eric Youngblood is he sleeps a lot when it's <laughs> dark outside. Because Brandon and I will be working. Now, granted, we're two hours ahead, right? No, we're, right. yeah, two hours yeah. ahead. But it'll be like 10 o'clock, and there's like, oh, yeah, Eric should be up. It's 8 o'clock. Crickets. <laughs> and then an hour later, we'll get, oh, I just got up. And I'm like, yeah. I get it. It's dark. There's, there's no it's light. It's cold. You just want to stay cozy <laughs> up in bed. Yep. And then the next text we get is like, oh, it's sunny out, so I'm leaving. <laughs> What's that? Oh, I said it's winter. You got to hibernate up here. <laughs> it's the only way to survive, <laughs> unless you take a tropical vacation. But when you roll out, you know, you wake up and you roll over and you look out the window and it's still pitch black. Like, do I look at my phone or do I feel tired? I might as well just stay in bed for a little bit. Some days it's 7, yeah. 6.30 and you get up. And then other days it's like 8.45 and you wake up and realize how late it is. But it doesn't, it looks all the same out the window. I mean, it's going to look dark out here until probably 9.30, 9.45. You guys will probably see the lights start to come in. But yeah, it's still pitch black out there right now at, what, nine, just a little after nine. Since I just gave him a hard time about that, let me give him a hard or a <laughs> good time about if we're out shooting bears and we have a place we go where we can take our vans and we'll, we can camp in the vans and then we can, can you guys hear that siren? Of course you can. Here, let me shut my door. I'm working with the door open today. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. It's uh, what is it? December twenty second, and the door is open. I don't know. It's probably it's not warm, but it's not chilly. It's <clears> perfect. It's like, actually. Yeah, forty eight degrees. It says. Yeah, we're at ten degrees today. I think it's supposed to get colder. All right. So what I was saying is, we'll be camping together to go film something, and when that happens, I'm the one that's sleeping in. <laughs> He's up, and Adam he'll be down sitting, you know, ready to go, and then I'll come sauntering an hour or two later. So. He's definitely definitely not a lazy fella. Yeah, just gotta I get mean, my you both are only when it's winter. <laughs> oh well, I don't even want to bring you into the conversation because yeah, yeah. you're kind of a nutty whack job. <laughs> you're still young. You're still you can still do it. You can still burn the candle at both ends. Well, and Eric can too, but I I'm past that. I don't know. It's catching up with me. You do have a lot of gray in your beard. I know. Do you see? It's like a skunk beard. And then when I comb my hair, I have like this duck butt. You know, when a mallard like feeds. Mm -hmm. I got like this duck butt, and so I'm like skunk boy with nut skunk boy with <laughs> exactly. All right, so what do we got on the docket for today's show? I know we were going to go over some highlight clips from the year, which was just a it was Brandon's idea. He's like, "Hey, why don't you know?" Because we're always like looking for cool stuff to talk about, and if we've been out on an adventure, we like to talk about that. Or if we've produced a YouTube video, video we're obviously going to talk about that, but. Not having a lot of stuff go out. No, I guess we have something out every week. Um, we didn't go out 
shooting this week, but Brandon came up with the idea of why don't we just each one of us pull two or three clips or stills that we're excited about from the previous year and we can have a little discussion as to what was cool about it. So I pulled out way too many. (laughs) I know, but it's like, you can't like, so I was talking about this earlier with stills. It's that moment in time, right? Mm -hmm. And you capture that moment that has everything and it's pretty dang cool. With video, you're capturing that along with a bajillion other frames, right? And I think it's just harder with video to get that one clip because you're never taking it for the one clip. You're taking it to tell a story, which requires a bunch of clips. So I think it's a lot harder to pull that one, the one thing out. You know, one of mine is super lame. I I say that every podcast about something. (laughs) I just feel like it's pretty basic. But what's cool is the subject and the light and the position and that kind of stuff. And then I pulled another one that was, there was no way to use just one clip. It's one species. And it's probably over the course of two days in the same spot. So essentially it's one. But I felt like I had to have three or four clips to really show how excited I was about this opportunity, I guess. So, and I'm the editor of this show, so I can do whatever the heck I want. (laughs) Do what I want. (laughs) (laughs) So that's on the docket. But I think before that, is there anything else that um, we just want to throw out and discuss, like sleeping habits and um, uh, (laughs) Santa uh, hat things? I do want to read some comments from listeners, but let's do the video and photos first. Oh, you want to do that? Did you guys do vo- videos and photo or just videos? I did. I just did videos because I hardly shoot any stills. Yeah, I don't shoot any stills really. Okay, so I did do one photo, but I guess we'll get there then. Yeah, Hold let's on. do it first. This is a big experiment too, so you all are going to have to um, bear with us. I think I'm going to be able to fix it in post, but we're going to have to share a screen. And then I'll, ha- I mean, it'll probably be, it probably, I it don't might. like that word. It probably will be seamless in the edit because I'll just fix it. But who's going to start? And I guess let me share a screen. Let's see how this goes. I mean, Eric was the first one to get his clips out there. So I think he gets the... <laughs> so uh, I could start. Yeah, I don't care. Obligatory Wait. first. I think it probably is a good transition because... Michael, just talking about how you have to, you know, when you're looking at a video clip, it could be a really, really beautiful clip, but you really need that story and more to it. So the one thing I was looking back at 2023, going through all the different trips and things that I had done. And I think the one thing that stuck out to me the most was more like I like this clip, but I want to do a better job of it. So with the one, one thing I'm going to talk to you guys about was more like a goal for 2024, something that kind of worked for Mm -hmm. me last year. So we'll show you that. But if I had to just pick one clip, I went ahead and, um, uh, that Audubon clip. So how do we want to do this? Do we want to play it and talk as you're playing it? I don't even know how long this one is, but do we want to play it and then talk about it? I've seen this one and it's freaking cool. Let's let's throw it up. Let's just watch yeah, just it. Yeah. Play it. 
That's cool. Yeah. So Audubon has their annual um, photography contest, and then they added a video component the last two years. But the the, um, the video clip has to be a single clip, essentially unedited. You could slow it down or um, do some minor edits like a photo. But it has to be just one clip from 5 to 30 seconds. So speaking to Michael's point of how do you pick one clip that you feel like does justice to everything? So I just like this one because of the behavior. I thought it was unique. I watch spotted sandpipers a lot. I've seen them, you know, on the shores of the lakes feeding, but I had never seen them in that sort of feeding behavior where they, you know, have their neck, um, you know, cranked back. So I guess I should describe it. Mm-hmm. If you're not watching, um, you should try and go to YouTube. Oh yeah. For all those people that are not watching on YouTube. <laughs> so it's a spotted sandpiper. Oh, yeah. How are we going to do that? Yeah. I'll have oh. to just describe it. Maybe they're going to get a play by play. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, spotted sandpiper creeping up along the uh, shores and they, um, we were there filming, uh, looking for black bears during the salmon season. And because there's so many salmon carcasses that are getting spilled on the sides of the shoreline, there's so much food for all the other species. And so while you're sitting there waiting for hours and hours, you start to notice all the things going on and you know, all the salmon carcasses covered in flies and there's flies and mosquitoes and bugs all over while these spotted sandpipers show up and they just have a heyday. They just walk around stalking and sniping these little flies and mosquitoes off the, um, you know, the seaweed and the rocks and the, the fish carcasses and stuff. So I just thought that was kind of a, a cool behavior, something that I had never seen up to that point and really enjoyed getting to be entertained by them running around. I have, you know, hundreds of little clips of them. Maybe he'll put out a little short of a, all the different <laughs> strikes that they did grabbing bugs, but... If I had to pick one video, I guess that was it. So that was featured in Audubon's top 15 um, video awards. I didn't win the contest, but um, they put up their top 15 and, and share those. So that was my contribution. Do you that. know what one? Um, I don't remember what it was. I think, I don't remember if it was this year or last year. I think there was like an osprey carrying a stick or something. Uh, it's... It's hard because I mean there are they're all cool clips, but they're just that it's just a short clip, so you kind of wish you could see more to it. You know, I think the thing too is um, birds are really hard if you don't have autofocus, but birds are really good for autofocus with these cameras. I don't know why, but the autofocus works really well most of the time with birds. So. I think you would almost have to have like for me to manually focus a bird flying straight in at me, I'll get it, but I'm only going to get a couple, two or three seconds. Cause it's so hard to adjust for the speed at which they're coming and how fast, how much I need to turn the, the focus on the lens to, mm-hmm. to match that speed. I mean, and it's not like a linear going to get two or three seconds. Focus pull. Yeah. No, it it's really always, fast. it depends it on close. the angle. It depends on the distance. It, it's so hard. Yeah. So, but I think the autofocus is where it's brilliant, right? So if you can lock on an Osprey or a, you know, Pelican gliding in or whatever, I think the autofocus really plays a, a good, important role. I plan on this year doing more with, when we go up and do our Eagle stuff, 
I plan on doing a lot more manual focus, eagle, just let it rip and just pray, spray and pray. Only I'm not pushing the button. I just push it once and then my spray and pray is the focus. Yep. <laughs> but I think that's a really cool clip, Eric. That's awesome. I, yeah. I think out of what you showed, it, that's equivalent to a steal. Because mm -hmm. of the behavior, right? The behavior yeah, yeah. is what does it. So I broke the rule and I sent a second video. If you want to, <laughs> we can discuss that one too. Or oh, you yeah. guys want to take a turn. This past spring for uh, shorebird season during the migration, they moved through a couple stopover places in Alaska um, that are popular and have festivals. So I attended one of them. And while I was there, I, I was still working. So I had a, a limited window and unfortunately I missed the first kind of big push. A lot of times they almost tend to hit this spot in like two big pushes. And I missed the first one by like a day. And then the second uh, push was just torrential rain every day, high winds. So I really didn't get to shoot a lot on this whole trip, which was kind of a bummer. I actually had plans for even bigger things that I got weathered out. Uh, boats couldn't run. So I had to spend a lot of time just kind of chilling and thinking. So what I came up with, um, well, which we've talked about the GoPro as like a camera trap, but then I also um, set up one of my uh, Sony cameras with one of my um, Cognosys uh, PIR sensors. The Cognosys is the camera trap sensor. PIR is the passive infrared. So it's like a motion detector sensor. And I just put the sensor on top of my camera in like a cell phone hot shoe mount and um, aimed it in front and would just deploy that because it's pouring rain. So it was really hard to shoot. So I would take the camera, set it up, put it in a rain cover and just go put it out right after the tide started to drop where I would assume that the birds might um, set up. So if I had more time, usually the birds kind of develop like a area that they really tend to roost at a lot. And it, if I had a little, a few more days, I really feel like I could have gotten it right in there with them. But as a proof of concept, it worked. I would have birds roosting like inches from the camera all around it at times, but as like in torrential rain or something would go wrong with the setup. So when I was looking back at clips, these aren't great clips, but this is what's got me going for next year. Thinking like, how can I deploy these sort of remote cameras where, you you know, we have the um, uh, things that you can use to trigger it remote. But this was kind of where I could trust to just leave the camera in this spot and go off into another area and just let it work for me. So yeah, if you want to roll it, uh, the first few are just a couple shots that the GoPro picked up. And then um, I labeled when I switched over to the Sony. I also had a microphone mounted on top, but you'll see it's pretty much raining in all of these. Uh, and what kind of birds are these, Eric? Um, so it's a mix of uh, mostly Western sandpipers there. That's cool. Look there will that. be some... Uh, least sandpipers that tend to feed a little bit higher up so yeah like these sort of shots where like a day before they would roost all along that ridge and on the hill so i think spending the time and figuring it out both you could capture some nice audio but um, getting them kind of roosted and just sitting there would be really really cool too
That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, because if you got them all, like, what do they call it when they fly in a group like that? Is that is there a term for that? Um, I guess if they just is use the like same murmur, murmuration. Yeah, murmuration yeah. or something. I think that's what they call starlings. Uh, we call it the avian aurora up here. <laughs> okay. That's cool. It's kind of the nickname that it's got. <laughs> up here in these parts, we call yep. it the avian. What is it? Avian aurora. Aurora. Yep. Oh, that's good. So, yeah. That's kind awesome. of something different. I hadn't really thought about doing exactly that, but I'm excited to think about some opportunities. So, I always keep one of those sensors and the cords with me. It's a real small sensor. Um, I can show you guys real quick. It's just um, this here. And so I just mount this on top of my camera and just aim it down in front and was able to have it trigger and record those clips and it'll keep the recording going if the animal stay in front of it. So just trying to did come you up have with the camera pieces. inside of a box for the rain or did you just no, have the camera cover on it? I just utilized, um, I think I had a little tripod, but I have like a little ground plate too. And so I would just mount it, just set it on the ground and then have the sensor on top with the rain cover over it just like a lens coat you know soft-sided rain cover and i would just put it out there once the tide started dropping so i knew it wouldn't get swamped out in the tide and then i would just go shoot somewhere else try and divide and conquer so with the pir it has a cable that comes out of it and then did that cable go right into your dslr yeah exactly and then that'll trigger it and it does yep. no software required. It just says nope. it on off, right? Or not yeah, even on you off. Can, it's just an on, right? I did find that I would have to. So the Cognosys controller that goes inside of like a Pelican case style box to keep for your camera and everything, that actual controller is what receives the signal. But if I wanted to change the settings on the actual uh, PIR sensor that I was using on my camera, I would have to connect it to a box and then connect it to my phone through the app. And then I could change the sensitivities or the record time or delays on the sensor itself. But then I could disconnect it from the box and just utilize the sensor. So you do have to connect it in to the box if you want to make any control changes because that's the phone communicates with that box controller through Wi-Fi. The sensor doesn't have that opportunity. So you do have to set it up through that. But then once it's set, then you could just take it into the field and run it as long as you don't need to make any changes. So I was still dialing in all those problems, you know, during the three or four days of rain. So that's why I'm kind of excited to try it again. So just so you know, you're not going to be able to go out and buy just that PIR because you do need the other parts to actually program it. And then what are the parameters that you're programming? Is it a sensitivity and is it a distance or what, what yeah. is it that you actually have to program? There's a couple things that um, you do have to set up certain cameras have different like wake up times. So if your camera goes into standby mode and you don't have a long enough delay from the time it sees a trigger to hit records, so, you know, like if your camera is asleep and you hit record real quick, I don't know if all of them, most of them probably won't just start recording immediately, at least not through a remote signal. So you need to tell the trigger to tell the camera when it senses something like do a half shutter press to wake up and then this is the thing is like a Sony camera, like one and a half to two seconds is usually enough of a delay to where it could actually do the actual shutter button to do the recording. So that's one of the big settings that could be an issue. And you can set these up for stills or video. So you'd have to 
make sure that you're not having it, you know, for a still where it's just constantly hitting the shutter and just start stopping your record. Um, so that's another thing that you'd have to adjust for. And then the sensitivities, I don't play with a lot. Most of the time, um, you know, whatever the kind of medium-ish sensitivities will always worked pretty well for me. I didn't notice that, you know, the with them moving around that I had any issues, but more or less just building it up based on your camera. Canon's got a little bit different um, triggers. Like Sony cameras, if they go for 24 hours without a shutter press, they'll completely turn off and they won't respond to a half shutter press. It will take a hard cycle on and off. And so this, you would have it, which I don't leave it out overnight, but you know, they'll have uh, every 23 hours, it'll send like a wake up half shutter press just to um, get it going again. Um, so there's just different things like that. There's a lot of, that's why there's so many things that can go wrong with these camera traps is because of all these little nuances and brand specific settings. But yeah, that's, that's essentially what you have to get set up ahead of time. And now I can just keep it in my bag and I don't even have to really worry about the settings. Just throw it on there real quick. That's so a cool. quick, quick little story. When I first bought my camera traps and I knew Eric wanted to get in the business I'm like, you should learn camera traps because there's not a ton of people out there doing it. And it's, it's the easiest way to fail. And if you can prevent failure for anybody, some production company, that's money, right? So I dropped them off with Eric, the ones that I had, cause I wasn't going to use them. I just don't, didn't, I think you have to have the right mindset too. I feel like Eric has the right mindset to do it. I just don't have that. I'll do it if I have to do it, but I'm not going to do all the testing and studying like he likes to do. But it this shows you what he's been able to figure out in a really simple little setup. And then that's like the base. You could take it so, I mean, because let's say if it takes a one second or a second and a half to trigger, if you're trying to do a bear, you're going to miss anything coming into the frame. Like if you want that shot coming into the frame, you're not going to get it if you only have one sensor. But if you have the proper setup, you could have two or three sensors that pick it up way before it's in the camera view, trigger the camera so that when the bear does enter the frame, the camera's already recording. So it's like, I just wanted to bring that up because it's just this, what we just saw here is almost like the base level because it's one sensor, one camera, and you're good to go. But you can take it so many more levels if you want to. How weatherproof is it? The sensor itself. You is, said it was in rain, so it, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. There's no worries about the sensor. They're strapped to a tree or whatever in the rain, snow, and everything. They're fine. The sent the uh, cable connections are on the sensor itself are watertight. So if you did want to run a wired setup, where I usually do everything wireless, but without using a controller box, hmm. then I had to utilize that. So the camera itself was the weak point there, but the rain cover kept it fine. My microphone survived in the rain too. How did you keep the pitter patter off of the, cause with the mics, you'll pick up the rain hitting the cover. Yeah. So did you it was just have a directional experiment. mic? I just wanted to see how good it would sound. No, I, there's probably going to be rain audio issues in there. I had a dead cat on it. So I mean, it might've knocked some of the rain noise down, but it would have been completely soaked in a short time. I was just hoping there would be a good weather day yeah. that was ideal. So I would, you know, put it up and just come back and see, is it testing? Is it, is it actually recording and trying to watch it a little bit myself to mm -hmm. see 
how it translated into the behaviors. And I wasn't sure how much it would influence them. I mean, shorebirds generally are pretty tolerable to people, but they're also like extremely pressured both in environmental issues and, you know, feeding and stuff. So I try to be somewhat conscious about it. And a lot of times my strategy, I watch the birds, you know, for a day or so and really figure out where they kind of utilize. And then I try and just go in way before the tides there. They, I guess I should explain that the high tide comes in and it kind of brings all the birds close to shore. So you don't have to go way out into the mud flats chasing them. But I try to just be in place and stay very calm and still ahead of time. Um, and that's just to try and minimize the pressure. So I thought maybe these remote cameras would mean I didn't have to like kind of creep into their area or, you know, kind of lets them have a nice quiet place. And it just looks like a piece of driftwood or whatever camo covered thing sitting right. there on the shore. They didn't care at all. They would just, you know, circle around it sometimes. And, but unfortunately those ones didn't record. <laughs> that was early on, <laughs> but also the issue is like, focusing what kind of focus distance do you set because you can mm -hmm. see i mean this camera is like inches off the ground so that whole perspective is kind of unique but it's hard to really figure out the right, right spot to set it up at so yeah something i'm looking forward to for next and you year. just use like a wide aperture you're using like f11 or something like that to yeah make sure you get everything I'm, I'm sure it was um something but it's a it's not 2.8 or something crazy no no yeah yeah cool yeah. Very cool. This is, you could take this camera trap stuff to all kinds of levels. And the thing you talked about, Eric, is you have to have the right spot too, right? You're fairly remote. There's people around, but there are people that are probably not going to mess with your cameras. You couldn't do this in an urban environment and leave it and expect it to be there when you come back. I mean, somebody's going to mess around with it or steal it or whatever. Um, out doing this kind of thing. I mean, you probably are always within you know, you can always see it, I would imagine. Too, yeah, so it's yeah. a little safer out there, but yeah. You know, and if you're not paying attention to the tides, your camera could get completely covered up too if you're depending on where your placement is. So you definitely have to be on point. <laughs> but you got it's not like you have to minutes to make your decision. You've got hours to yeah to play with. Yeah, and it's a small community. I wasn't too worried. Most of the people there that are out photographing, you know, we had always we had been talking and they knew what was going on. So I wasn't too worried about it, but I wouldn't do that in most other places <laughs> when you're in a tiny community that you can only get yeah. in on a ferry or an airplane. And like they're not going to grab it and take off driving somewhere. There's nowhere to go. So I felt pretty safe there. It's a good thing about these little yeah. tiny Alaskan communities. Yep. That's pretty cool. That's cool. Yep. All right, Brandon, you're up next. Sure. Mine's going to be terrible because I don't, I didn't do, I should have, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think about cutting this clip up. Yeah, I didn't cut mine up, so I'm sorry, Mr. So, Editor. <laughs> uh, all right, here we go with Brandon. All right, you can, I guess, since it's so long, I mean, we got a 12-minute yeah, clip. <laughs> well, you we can, don't need to watch it all either. You can set the scene. So, so we were up in Alaska in Homer. And we were in that mindset of the camera traps, right? So we had been trying to capture this mountain lion, and I had a GoPro with me. Well, we found this dead sea otter that had washed up, and the eagles were starting to pick on it. So I waited until a point where all the eagles had flown off. 
and we had this sea otter that was exposed. And they were trying to get into it, but they have a pretty thick coat, the sea otters do, and so the eagles were struggling on it. And so they're going after all the soft bits that they normally start at. And so I waited for these eagles to leave and crawled up there and made this little like igloo for the, the GoPro and stuck the GoPro in there, set the camera trap, scanned the QR code and booked it out of there and went and filmed with the red. Well, this eagle ended up landing, which is what we're seeing here. So this eagles landed and I'm not fooling him at all. You can see he's walking up to the, the sea otter and he looks right at the camera. He knows it's there. It wasn't well camouflaged, but it wasn't me sitting up there five feet from it. And we actually watch this, get to watch this eagle feast on this sea otter for, I don't know, I got 60 minutes of it. But what was exciting to me is that the camera trap actually worked. So it triggered, it continued to run. So it was seeing that motion. All my settings were working. Every time it moved, it kept it running. And it was just like one of those things like, oh my gosh, it actually works. And it's a pretty cool little clip. I, I don't have a sea otter eating, or I don't have an eagle seen, eating a sea otter this close before. We were doing some long lens stuff, but this is just a pretty different uh, perspective for it. So it was pretty cool. Um, it was more of a favorite clip of mine than a uh, award-winning clip or anything like that. But yeah, proof of concept type of thing. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, but this kind of a clip is going to play really well in some sort of production that you're doing that you need right. to, you know, because there's plenty of time. He does, and I'll, I challenge anybody to put a camera out in the wild and not have it be detected. Right. Anything out there is very well aware of seeing something glass, a lens of some sort. They're always going to look at it. Yeah. I don't care how good you have it camouflaged. But once they realize it's not a threat, a lot of times the following footage is really good, which is what you've got here. I mean, this eagle figured out that it's, there's nothing going to get him or her or whatever. And it can just go ahead and do what it needs to do. And you would have never, ever got this shot no. if, you were, if your body was there. That eagle's right. not coming to that spot. Right. And your and igloo, some... did you say your igloo, you said igloo, and I don't want people to think we made a snow igloo. It was an igloo out of rocks. I, I yes. don't know if I was paying attention or not. Yeah, I don't know what else to call it. I guess maybe a... <laughs> little piggy brick house although i probably could have blown it over so i don't know i made yeah. a, a small cover out of coastal rocks and it worked pretty good because it was good for us filming long lens too because then you just see a pile of rocks and it looks right. pretty yeah. natural and you don't see this camera in our shots Maybe. so there's a yeah. lot of things to think about yeah it was cool i mean there was some fun things like you can see it right now it's really working to try and get in there and they just that fur is so thick, so they they picked the pelvic bone pretty clean, and so they were trying to open it up more, and it just wasn't happening. But it's a really cool behavior. Um, they jump, and you get to see their little funny waddles. And I didn't get a call, unfortunately. I was hoping to get a call because I did have a media mod on it, but at least I got some hops and stuff. But it would have been really cool to get that call that close because it would have been really good audio. And that will happen if you're there long enough. Because right. right. when, when they start calling like that, that's when another bird is coming in. Yeah. So yep. you can see another bird way off in the distance. Off in the, on the right-hand side, there's a white head down there. Yep. So if that bird would have come in, then that eagle would have called for sure. Yeah. But it's a pretty dang cool clip, and I'm glad you pulled it because this is the first time I've seen it. Yeah, it's cool. We watched it when we were No, we didn't. 
so I pulled it up just earlier this week when we were talking about the ideas. So, yeah. and it gets a little metal for those of you that are actually watching. It's like there's a part where it starts pulling out little bits, and there's like strings that he's eating and stuff, which is really cool to me. So if you have a weak stomach, maybe fast forward. <laughs> well, if you eat steak, you should not have a weak stomach. Yeah. Right. I don't know. <laughs> All righty. And then you had a still too. You want to talk about that or should we let this go or what do you want to do? Uh, we can shut it down. I mean, it's okay. just an eagle eating. It is cool to see how they move their heads. Like you can see it's almost mm -hmm. like 90 degrees there. Just getting in there. And how sharp that beak is. Cause it is ripping mm -hmm. some flesh out of there. Well, and how big they are. Eagles are big birds. Like you see them. I don't know. Like their bodies make them look smaller when you see them off at a distance. But when you see it up next to that sea otter, I mean, they're big birds. So it's cool. Okay. Here we go. You with your still. Oh, the still. So the still is of a great gray owl. It's of the same period. Um, the still image is of a great gray owl on this little itty bitty uh, coniferous tree. And it's like a twig, but it was doing this balancing act and it was at this point in time that one of its wings came up and kind of balanced itself and it's looking off to the side and it's a cool picture. Um, but what was so cool for me is we had been searching for a great gray owl. We don't get those in Colorado. And so we'd gone to Wyoming look, looking for them. We didn't find Hold on. Who's we, who's we, Oh, sorry. My wife and I, and then I drug my little guy, the little seven year old with me. Right. And so we've been looking for a great gray for, three years at this point in time. Wow. So I got to see one. My wife did not. So she was, she was happy with the picture, but she was a little like, Oh That's sure. You're just going to get things without me When's now. My turn, yeah. And so, right. Right. And so she was, she was a little upset with that, but I was excited cause I got a great gray. Uh, we got to spend a lot of time with it. We met some really cool people. We actually met Sergius, um, kind of made a friendship there, which was really cool. It was just a good experience all the way around. So it was kind of the the cherry on top for the trip. And so that that great gray is just a favorite of mine because it's kind of a first. It's one of those birds that I'd wanted for a long time. I absolutely love owls. And, I mean, it was just so cool to be that close. So that's why I like that image. Yeah, that was really cool. I love great gray owls. I'm hoping that they start showing up in Anchorage here. And we were kind of theorizing that we had so much snow here and anchorage that they were pushed further south and maybe that's why it was good down there but uh we'll see if it holds true this year because of all the snow again but yeah looking forward if you to do it. i'll get on a plane yep <laughs> they're just so cool like they're because they they're huge and they're kind of an aloof bird like they they'll they'll pay attention to you and i was wearing this jacket from sitka that it's not that like swish swish material but it's just it makes that sound anyone that it's like a, one of those, it's supposed to be quiet and it's quieter, but every time I'd move, he'd like turn it and look at me because it was a different noise. And so I was like trying to hold still, but it was just a cool experience. But yeah, they would yeah. like just kind of lazily fly and we got to see him catch a few things, which is cool. So. Man, I am such a ding dong. I should have totally. That was this like 30 minutes this footage. Well, no, like oh. this one clip, I'm just going to pull up a couple of shorties just because I didn't think about it. So I think we've talked about this on a prior podcast where we found these uh, American Dippers 
in mm-hmm. Alaska last year and we had just stopped at a spot and it was serendipity. I mean, it makes sense that they're there, but I wouldn't have thought of it. We were going there just to shoot some stand-up interviews, I think. And From then, the Eagles, yeah. Yeah, because we didn't do it when we should have done it in Homer. We just were like, oh, we need this. So we stopped at this place. And um, while we're doing, while we're standing there doing our stand-ups, we see the dipper. And I've seen plenty of dippers, but they usually have a big, huge stretch of river to work, right? And so you'll see them for a moment. But then they're off to the next rock, which was probably out of sight, or they're up, you know, 100 yards. This particular spot, it's very, very uh, tidal influenced, and it is also not very long. So these guys are right out in the open, which was kind of cool. And the whole time we stood there and did our stand-up, this little bird is fishing right next to us. So I'm thinking, man, that is quite the opportunity because they're – Eric, you can probably throw in a lot more about the dippers, but from what I know, they're the only water. Would this be classified as a songbird? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we would call it a songbird. And it's the only one that that lives in the water type environment, right? Mm-hmm. That feeds in the water. Yep. So that's what makes it so cool. And then they they're pretty drab looking. They're not don't have a lot of color, but their behavior is super cool so i'll just play this i think it's starting at a spot where i thought it was kind of interesting the difficult thing about filming these guys is they're like they had six cups of coffee that morning and a red bull and they're just like zip 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 and (laughs) and then you never know if they're going to come up with a fish or you know some sort of aquatic insect or whatever you just never know so you end up shooting just tons i think i shot Oh, four or five terabytes worth of footage. Oh my gosh, of dippers? <laughs> of dippers. And then we happened to be, this was in March, I think. So they're starting their whole mating kind of thing. It's very pre-mating, but they're interacting. The two birds are interacting, not all the time, but just occasionally. And trying to get that footage and try to predict where it might happen. It's So I got a cool shot of this right here. And they just, there you go. And I think that's just a little salmon fry. Awesome. He even got his little dip before. Yeah, and then he got another one. So, and I can't tell how many times I've tried that to get that one shot. It was like, and another one. (laughs) One after another. (laughs) That's awesome. But I had seen this bird going to this one particular spot over and over and over. And it would move rocks. So it would pick up a rock with its beak and just kind of move it forward. And I was wondering if it was trying to create a little habitat for a fish that it could come back to later. Because mm. it would come back and then it would root around where it had flipped over a rock. So I don't know. I have no idea if that's what goes on or not. But for me, um, that was one of the coolest clips I got all year. And it's probably because I haven't shot this too much. And they're hard to shoot and they're hard to find. Not hard to find. You can find them all over. I mean, they run, I don't know what their southern boundary is, but they're all over Colorado. I can go anywhere in Colorado on a stream and find a dipper. So I would imagine they go into New Mexico as well. And then you find them all the way up into Alaska. So their range is quite large. And I, do you know, Eric, how far east they go? No, I'm not sure. 
Okay. I'd have to look. I'm sure they're probably yeah. nationwide. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, that was one of the cool, cool moments for me. And I really didn't even think about that shot till last night when I was like pulling these clips to try to talk about something that I thought was pretty mm-hmm. cool that I was able to shoot this year. But, um, you know, I shot plenty of bears. I shot lots of moose. I shot all this stuff. And those are the ones that come to top of mind right away, right? Just because that's yeah. what we do a lot of. But it's this more obscure stuff that is actually a little bit more rewarding. So it looks like I pulled up a map. They range from Alaska to Central America. They do not go past. I mean, there's some vagrant statuses, but for the most part, they don't go past the the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Oh, really? So they yeah, probably go all the way to the coast, though, right? All the way west, yep. Yep. And then all the way up and down. And would they go all the way to the Arctic? Or is it? Uh, it looks like there's a kind of a hemisphere line right there on the north side. They get up to probably an eighth of the northern coast of Alaska, but not all the way. <laughs> so, and that's probably temperature driven. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty cool little birds because it is fun to get them in the wintertime because they're still feeding just like they mm-hmm. always do. So. Um, and I threw in several clips here of these dippers and that's what I was talking about in the very beginning is I just got, you know, just, you just have to have so many different clips to tell that story. If you're going to try to produce a little short, you know, we would call this a quest video. So for our YouTube channel, we would say, Hey, we're going to go out and try to shoot one particular species and just give a little snapshot, not a whole year, but we might give a little months long snapshot into this particular habitat with this particular species so but you have to have a bunch of those shots to tell that Mm -hmm. whole story i think i spent a total of five days here and i just went day after day after day and um i didn't get anywhere close to getting enough stuff to actually put something together yet i mean we could probably do something about the gear and the location and the dipper and everything i've talked about here that would might make for an interesting story for a lot of people that are birders but Eric and I, when did we go back there, Eric? It was like in June or maybe it was April, May. I don't know. We yeah. went late when they had a nest. We actually found their nest. Yeah, I went back. But and they're trying to... so good at nesting. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Eric. Their nesting is like usually above, you know, waterfalls or rapid water, something to kind of keep them protected. It's on like a sheer cliff. So I spent a few days going in and trying to find it. But I mean, it's early enough in the spring that I was going through snow that I was punching through to my waist almost because that area we were at gets tons of snow. So from the snow being there, keeping me out to them already being off the nest, we kind of missed out on that behavior. But yeah, going going in, um, trying to just follow them through that whole cycle to build out the story, it, it takes a lot of work. It's a lot of <laughs> repeated trips and, and time and I've shot dippers in Anchorage here. They're all over town in the creeks and streams. But usually, like Michael said, they're, it's a skinny little creek. If you get too close, sometimes they fly off, and then you're chasing them you know, a quarter mile up and down the creek. So this spot was kind of nice, but being able to sit with them for a long time. But, the downside to this spot is it doesn't, in the wintertime, doesn't get a lot of sun. So I'm there in March, right? So... I pulled this little shot because at least it gives a little tiny little bit of sunshine <laughs> that it was shining in. Um, let me just roll this real quick. And this was shot slow-mo and I shot it at, um, 
4K. So this is an 8K camera that I'm shooting at 4K. So I'm getting kind of that, um, what do you call it? You're getting a crop factor. Right? Crop factor. Yep. I'm getting the crop pack, crop factor. And then I'm also, I can, on that camera, I can run up to 240 frames a second. I don't know what this is at. It probably says in here. That's cool. But when they're dipping like that, what you see there, that's usually really quick, quick dips. But since we're in slow modes. <laughs> but in reality. And that water is so cold. Oh, it's so cold. So cold. And they're just, they live in it. I mean, they're in it all day long. I remember the first one that I Same, saw when we first moved up here and we went for a hike on a trail and I was walking. I wasn't super into birds at the time, but I remember seeing, hearing this bird calling and singing. I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is. And all the birds are here were pretty new to me. And then I just see this bird fly and just fly straight into the water. And not knowing that that was normal, like, oh my gosh, that bird just, why did that bird just fly right into the creek? And then it just popped out and was running around on the side and then it jumped back in. Like, all right, something is really weird about this bird. And then I figured out, oh, there's a bird called a American Dipper that lives in the water. But it's pretty nice when you're out hiking in the winter, a nice, you know, fresh snow day. And it's really calm and quiet and you'll just hear them singing and it's really pretty. Really nice melodic yeah. musical song. It's hard to get their audio too, right? It's hard to get that song because they're always around water. So then you're fighting with the water. Um, we found a spot. Um, our buddy Ray, we all shoot with Ray um, up in Alaska a lot. He was with me and he knew that I was trying to get audio. And he was out walking. It was low tide. So he walked out to the tide just because he didn't want to keep shooting dippers like I was. And he got to a spot where these dippers were way off away from the stream and he was able to just hold his phone out and get the song. So I think I've got a pretty good little bit of mm-hmm. audio that I can throw in there. Um, and lastly on this, the by far and away the coolest shot I got last year, I didn't want to put up in here because we're going to put it in the three ways to use a GoPro. And we did put a GoPro underwater and got these dippers underwater. Not a lot of shots. There's just a couple. And I tried. I can't tell you how many hours of footage I tried. Because <laughs> it's just a crapshoot, right? You just don't know where they're going to fish. You don't know. I mean, you want them used to the camera. So, um, But the one clip that we did get, the really good one, is pretty dang cool. So when that video comes out, and we're going to release that in, what is it, uh, January sometime. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a pretty fun fun clip to watch and maybe give you some ideas as to what you could do with your own GoPros. Speaking of storage, Mr. Morrow, <laughs> how is your, uh, so every year you have your little look back, right? And you kind of do a look at the year type of thing. And then it sends you down this hole. Well, we had an idea and I'm making you scramble for some images that you took a little while ago and you have been on a, quest for images that were taken like 20 years ago right and in doing so you have uh, enlightened us to the amount of hard drive space that you need do you want to give us an update on don't tell us the number because i think we're going to play a game with the (laughs) listeners but do you have an update on that how's that going man it's a whole show this is a whole show that i think we could do on how 
I am just by far and away the most ob- obscure numbers. I mean, most people are going to be, I would say 50 terabytes would be a max, right? Right. For most people that are shooting, especially stills, you might even get away with 20 terabytes or 10 terabytes and yeah. you'd be just fine. Uh, one of my good buddies, well, if you guys all listen to the Wild and Exposed podcast and Mark Raycroft was on that, Mark used to carry a hard drive in his pocket that had every one of his select images on it all the time. The guy never went anywhere without it because he'd get requests all the time for images. And so he could just pull it out of his pocket, put it up in his computer and go. Video is a whole different story. You can't do that just because especially when you're shooting these bigger cameras with bigger files, you just, it's just too much, just too much. uh, These files are way too big. So, and then I've done all this corporate work over the last 20 years. And then I've done all the wildlife work. And I started the wildlife stuff in the nineties and I've got most of that. It's really hard to find, but I, if I spend a couple of days, like Brandon was saying, I can generally come up with the image, but I'm looking through thousands and thousands of images to find one. (laughs) So, yeah, so I had this little job and I didn't realize how much I actually had until I started doing this. Um, What should I get? I mean, I can't really give, any of the particulars because i found you know i estimated and told you guys i'll tell you the estimated number no don't do that no okay uh maybe i can tell the number of drives yeah there you go tell us the number of drives if i can find it okay so i have a total of 161 drives in the office here and they range from what sizes from two terabytes with like a little in the early days I would take and I would go buy an internal hard drive for a computer. So I'm going to hold up one and you guys can look at it if you're watching on YouTube. Otherwise just think about a hard drive inside of a desktop computer is what I'm going to show. Hold on. Stop sharing your screen. Should I, I would kind of want to let it go so that it would time up, but okay. I don't know. It you're didn't time tiny. up because we didn't start. You're just tiny. Well, but the actual file will be big when I get it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I think it's fine just to keep it going. <laughs> okay. So anyway, so the two terabyte drives all the way up to 14 terabyte drives look like something like this. So this is just an internal hard drive that you would put inside of a desktop PC. Mm-hmm. And then I have a dock. So you can buy a dock on Amazon that this thing just plugs into, and then it acts as an external hard drive. And then you can buy little cases for these, which go on shelves really nice. And then I number them and catalog them and do everything. And so that's how I can find stuff. So starting at two terabytes, which was been a long time ago, because I was always buying the biggest drive you could buy at the time. Then you move all the way up to 14 terabyte drives. And then just last year, I bought that 132 terabyte NAS drive. So out of all those drives in the office, I have 161 different drives. And those are all the A. I have a B version of all those except for the NAS. I don't have a A and B of the NAS. So 132 terabytes is just, but it's set up on a RAID. So if something, if one of the drives did fail, I could hopefully get everything back. But the other ones, these can fail because there's no, you know, if I drop this, I've dropped a few of them over the years, they're done. 
mm-hmm. you're just uh, so Game you've got to have an A and a B. And I keep A in the office, and then B is kept off site. So now I'm like, these two terabyte drives are ridiculous. <laughs> I want to now go in and say, take all whatever, however many two terabytes and consolidate those into a 14. I could put seven two terabyte drives on one 14 terabyte drive and get rid of seven drives. But then the waste, what do I do with all these drives? I don't know. It's a conundrum. And I'm just small potatoes. Can you imagine out there in this world how many people have so much stuff out there? Can you imagine like Netflix just to house all the movies? Oh, how about Amazon Web Services? Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. They got okay, so buildings full of drives. Let's play a game then. So the listener, actually, we're going to say the viewer that goes out to the YouTube and comments with the right number. Do we want to give them a plus or minus? Like two, three, five? <laughs> I or think you could do a plus or minus two. No, you could do five. five. Yeah. Okay. So the viewer that goes out to YouTube and guesses the correct number, plus or minus five, of the correct number of terabytes that Mr. Morrow has in his studio gets a free t-shirt and I will ship it out to you and we'll figure out all of the details, color and size and all that stuff. If you get it right. And I'm down to the point. I got (laughs) blank, 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 point, blank, blank. Yeah. We're not doing that. You don't have to guess to the point. (laughs) But if you do, if you You guess it dead nuts on, you get a hat too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If you get it, then that's like you're golden. I'll send you stickers too. So hat, <laughs> shirt, and stickers if you get it right. Oh, man. It's terrible. I just don't know. I mean, how do you manage all this stuff? I think we should do a whole episode on it because there are a series of programs that I use. There's a series of storage, um, like physical storage things that I do. And it all comes in really handy. Um, oh, and that number doesn't even include all of these little, I have a bunch of little five terabyte travel drives and I have a bunch of, um, yeah, something like what Brandon's showing on the screen right now. I have a bunch of SSDs, that number, the number that you're going to guess doesn't even include all of those. So it's just ridiculous. And I'm sure there's plenty of people out there with storage woes, but if we could do a little show on how we all manage all of our stuff, I think it might be helpful i think brandon you said when you first started listening to the wild and exposed you heard something yeah it was on the wild and exposed had a good one on it and i forget who did it but it was that that got me the whole use a primary drive that you work off of you have an a drive and then a b drive and the b drive needs to be somewhere else so and it shouldn't be too much further where we're just all using ssd drives but it's just still cost prohibitive to have a 14 terabyte ssd i don't even know if they make them I think you can get an eight terabyte SSD, which I have in my computer, my laptop. But they're expensive. Yeah, I paid a pretty price <clears> for it. But I'm so glad I did it because when I edit these podcasts, I just put everything internally on my computer, hard drive, mm-hmm. edit the podcast, then I just offload it when I'm done. And I know it's always with me. I don't have to have an external drive. If I have yep. my computer, I have the podcast, I can edit it, and it's fast. Yeah. I've been so, editing off the NAS. Yeah, and you can do that. Now, mm-hmm. see, and that's whole part of that whole thing. Let's... If y'all want to hear something on how each one of us does storage and how you can make your workflow flat faster and how you can edit off of a, a big network attached storage device, 
we've got it all figured out and I'm happy to share it. I just don't want to bore everybody with it now. But right. if you all say, hey, we want to hear it, just put it in the comments on the YouTube. And, yeah, we'll do a separate episode. We'll do a whole separate episode because Brandon and I are slowly figuring it out because we're trying to duplicate our NAS drives so that anything I put on my NAS drive goes to his NAS drive. And that way we have a backup there. But we haven't completely figured that out yet. I think it's working, but we're not sure. So, and then we want to get one for Eric, but Eric is going to have to enter the the future years before he can ever even think about uh, having a NAS because his his uh, internet speeds are yeah. insanely. We slow. don't have the fiber stuff that you guys have access to. Right I just now. got fiber. I know that's awesome. Yeah, Brandon Tell just me. got fiber. Get take a guess at how what his upload and download is. Oh, it's amazing. It's what, it's, the upload right. is 2,200 megs a second, and download is 2.5 or 2,500 megs a second. Fantastic. But the problem yeah. with that is it introduces all kinds of problems to your, your office, right? So, like, I have a switch, a network switch, to then get everything in to get it to computers and the network attached, uh, the NAS, the network, uh, network attached storage. Why is that so hard for me? And, uh, it's all gigabit except for two ports, which are the 10 gigabit, mm. which goes to the computer on my Mac studio because it has a 10 gig chip in it. And then the, the NAS that Michael and I both use has a 10 gig switch into the back as well. And so that's how you're able to do that. But now I'm limited. So my switch is limiting me to a, like 980 megs a second. And so I'm not even getting the full benefit yet. So that's, that's what I've been dealing with is a whole disaster of, Where's my bottleneck? There's a whole lot of people playing a violin for you right now. I know. Can you guys imagine? <laughs> no, Eric's crying. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I realize like uh, you know, you're talking like over a hundred terabytes to build that whole system. It's you know you're caught. You're in the thousands of dollars at that point. It's a uh, yes, and a whole other beast if you. Yep aren't exposed to storing a lot of data it gets you know the drives luckily you know like these little four terabyte drives are a couple hundred bucks now but when you deal with redundancies and stuff it it adds up quick i think i mean just to hit it real quick i think if you're a a hobby shooter you're probably not going to have that much footage just because you're you're probably snapping for reels or or something like that on the video side where a lot of, like Michael said, it's all this corporate work. Like you just get, like we did five days in Orlando and I think we probably walked away with a terabyte each at least. Well, there's three people shooting video and yeah. And you've got to, you know, you're working for a client so you can't just like do the project and throw it away. Or you can, you can write it into the contract. Right. But I always was like, okay, the the added value that I would bring is I would just store their stuff forever. Right. And I have, um, and it's come in handy a couple of times. I mean, but that's just uh, under promise and over deliver, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, so I, I think we had one other thing on the docket, right? Well, I was just going to have, there's a few things that I want to read from our YouTube or, uh, comments or questions. So the first one is last week we talked about the bird uh, count for Christmas, Eric. Mm-hmm. And you posted one in the community tab on like an update on that. And we had some questions yeah. if you could link your checklist. And I saw you you linked yep. it down there, but maybe you could just talk about it real quick. Oh, yeah. Um, so if you do go to the community tab, 
you'll see I just posted some pictures of uh, Christmas bird count last weekend. Um, I kept track through eBird. Um, they have an app and the website. So you can log in um, if you want. You can have it uh, do your track. So it'll tell you how far you walked and it counts the time. I just did it manually. Um, so Anchorage doesn't have a lot of birds in the winter. We have a few uh, species that stick around. So it's not a real exciting checklist. But uh, yeah, in terms of bird species, probably the most exciting bird was a overwintering ruby-crowned kinglet, which they usually migrate out of here, but you know, a couple sometimes stick around. Um, so we had that, which was kind of uncommon. And then for Anchorage, the season, which we've been talking about crossbills on a lot of our past episodes, and for Anchorage, it was a, a high count, a historical high count for mm-hmm. uh, the Christmas bird count. So the highest number of white-winged so crossbills that Anchorage has ever had, yeah four count day so that was really good but in contrast it was the lowest i think for bohemian wax wings so it's been a bad year for them and then um invasive did you guys have a good year last year no it was it was snowed so hard during the count day that it was like blizzard conditions and i think after like an hour and a half i just called it like i had probably 20 individual birds not species but just like individual birds that's all i saw so this time I think I had a few hundred, okay. which is pretty good, honestly. Um, you know, like 40 cool. or 50 black cap chickadees, boreal chickadees, you know, in the like 70 or so cross bills and um, red poles were also pretty high count this year too. So hmm. yeah, it's fun to see the trends cool. each year. You never know what you'll, what will turn up and um, sometimes there's some rare birds cause you get, you know, imagine there's a couple hundred people spread out over Anchorage, you know, dividing and conquering and, and really, um, checking out all the territory. So I think someone turned up a, um, Cassin's finch north of town, which is unusual for us. Mm-hmm. We really don't get any like house finch, purple finch, Cassin's finch. They're hardly up here, but so that's something new for town. That's cool. But yeah. Check it Did out. Did you say you, I think you got cut off, but you had said something about invasive species or no? Oh yeah. Um, European starlings are, uh, invasive. They take over, you know, a lot of nesting habitats. They're remarkable birds. If you get over that point and watch, I mean, these things are, if you drive around Anchorage in the summertime, they're coming in and out of these light poles and different, I mean, they've monopolized every place they can. And so their numbers have been trending up quite a bit. And I think there have been some programs to try and reduce numbers, especially out towards the airport because of issues with bird strikes. But it didn't make a dent. I think, you know, a thousand birds might have been taken out of the equation, but their numbers are still counting about the same year to year. So I think that's just one species that they're too successful and they've been able to. I mean, you know, in the summertime here, anything that's out in the sun and the metal it's just so roasting hot burn your hand and how these birds can fly in a tiny little hole in a light post and raise a family is pretty incredible (laughs) how they don't like just roast how their eggs can incubate i guess they don't have to sit on them maybe (laughs) what? but yeah so it's fun to it's fun to see they haven't um tabulated all the numbers they usually count they do what they call count week, which is plus or minus three days from the count day. So if, if there is a rare species that's seen 
not on the count day, we can still report it in um, just to help give a little bit better data, but it's marked as a count week species versus count day. And that's just to see if, you know, something like these finches, we might, 10 years from now, we might start seeing two or three or four and then, you know, a hundred. So just to try and build the trends and, and monitor what's going on. But yeah, this is the 124th, I think, annual on a national level. And Anchorage has been going for, wow. I don't know how many years now, quite a few, but longstanding project. Pretty cool to participate in if you can. Okay. I got one for you, Michael. Oh, that was from, let me, hold on. I probably should have said their names, huh? That was from Ethan. So thanks for asking, Ethan. Let's see. So we have another one from Rob Waddell. It says, I, I'm glad I found you guys. I miss Wild and Exposed. I'm a running gun wildlife hybrid rails and stills shooter. Shoot most, mostly a Nikon Z8. I'd be interested in your suggestions for video settings for my type of shooting. I generally keep my video settings to 4K 60 frames per second, shutter at 1 over 125 on a codec of H.265. That way he can switch from video fast and get something he can slow down if needed, and if handheld, get better stabilization with a higher shutter speed. He'll adjust his settings if the wildlife allows him time, and he'll and then he gives us some about where he listens to the podcast. So do you have any... I mean, those settings sound pretty good for me, Michael. While you were talking about that, (laughs) Apple did the whole thumbs down thing, bubble. (laughs) And it came out right when you said H.265. Well, (laughs) I I mean, H.265 is probably a lot. You're wasting a lot of memory for that. It's a heavy codec. Uh, for your computer. And so you, as long as your computer's running it, you're probably good. I don't know how much editing you're doing, but H.265 is a heavy codec for most computers. Um, like YouTube's most time H.264. And for those of you that are like, what is he talking about? It's just the codec and the way the, compu- the computer and the video footage talk, simply put, I think. And so H.264 is probably good enough for most of you. Now, I'll say that in one breath. And in the next breath, I will tell you, if you can get away shooting that good footage and getting it in the good codec and you have the space for it, do it. Because you're going to future-proof that footage by just that much more. I mean, to what Michael was talking about earlier, I mean, some of that stuff, you were talking 90s or early 2000s, right, Michael? And they were from slides. And there's some from the Eagles that were with, what was it, a Canon 1D or what was the first one? The original 5D. And they look good. Like he sent us some and they look like I would never notice. And so if you can future proof that stuff, I mean, use the best that you can. So I don't think I answered any of that better, (laughs) but hopefully it gives you a better idea. H.265 is really hard on computers. If you can do it, why not? H.264 is going to be something if you're going to just shoot it and get away with it and never look at it again. Why use all the space that you don't need? Um, but otherwise, I mean, your settings are there. The one over 125, you're as close as you're going to be. 4K 60, I totally agree. You don't need 4K 120. Why do you need to watch a second turn into, I don't know, five seconds or whatever your base rate is? So I'm, um, I like it. Yeah, I think it's good. And I think, um, if you have time, play with it. And do some other stuff. If you don't have time, just say, you go to your go-tos and just get what you can get because that 
at least get you that footage. And if you're just doing reels, I mean, that's all you really need is that one original shot. And it doesn't even have to be perfect. You know, these days it doesn't have to be like cinematic. Mm -hmm. It just has to, you know, if you capture a behavior or some viral moment, that is going to be way more valuable or way more fun to share than, you know, worrying about your settings and then missing that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And the, lastly on the wild and exposed thing is it's, it's not over. I mean, it's kind of sitting on the shelf for the moment. I mean, we may be able to pick it back up, but we're having so much fun with this YouTube, I guess, organized content and podcast that it'd be hard to fit it in, but hopefully this will suffice for, a while until we figure out what we're doing with that wild and exposed thing. Okay. I got one more. Thanks for that question, Rob. Uh, let's see. I'm going to preface Is this. Is this the first. political one? Yes. So I'm going to, I'm going to preface this and I'm going to, okay, we have to be adults here and we're going to have a debate or maybe we won't. I don't know, but let's just try to keep opinions out of it. And we are just going to have a thoughtful, discussion <laughs> thoughtful discussion people who should be president us included <laughs> brandon so this is from tim nichols which i love this question but it i don't know if i want to do this all right here we go colorado just released its first wolves i'd be curious to hear your thoughts and insights you have on the reintroduction in the state in one of your future episodes so do you have any thoughts on that michael i know i have some thoughts oh, i don't I know if uh, eric has any thoughts i've got no thoughts in, <laughs> i read the comment and i thought <laughs> oh that's news that's interesting i guess i'll learn something <laughs> new so let me sit so back and those, have my coffee <laughs> yeah so for those of you or maybe maybe explain the background michael or you, do you want me to do it you probably better because i spent so much time away that i don't have oh, that's true yeah you're gone for okay so there was a proposition that hit Colorado voters and they, I'm going to summarize a lot of this just cause I don't want to get into a whole episode of this, but it pretty much went to the voters on a proposition on whether we were going to introduce wolves to Colorado and that there was going to be money set aside for science surrounding those wolves. And then there's some things with ranchers and the cost per head of cattle and different things like that. So it went to a vote voters across the state voted for it and so wolves were to be introduced by the end of 2023 well here we are at the end of 2023 the first wolves were being introduced into colorado so that kind of sets the very basic uh kind of guidelines for this so the biggest problem i have is you should not be doing wildlife management through vote that is ridiculous i mean you just have a bunch of people that don't have any background at all and they just know the romance of wolves and I, while i agree 100 i would love to see wolves roaming everywhere free but that requires a lot of land it requires a lot of uh, just less interactions with people less interactions with livestock and we are an evolving state that is just doing nothing but getting bigger the population is getting bigger so what we're going to try to do is say 
reintroduce these wolves and say, okay, we've got the Wimanooch Wilderness Area, which is the largest wilderness area in the state. And Brandon, if you could look that up while I'm talking, I don't know. I think it's like, I don't know how many thousands of acres it is. It's pretty big. It's down in the southwest part of the state in the San Juans. Could you put a wolf in there and have it not have a ton of interaction with people and livestock? Probably. 499,771 acres. Okay, so let's just say it's a half million acres. Yellowstone is 2 million acres. In Colorado, it's just, to me, it's just a little absurd to try to do it because we're so far above the population of what would be considered like natural. Mm -hmm. That, and you just don't, I mean, people go to school to manage wildlife. You don't do it over a vote. That just is, you know, I was kind of joking around with people when I, when it first came out. I was like, okay, what it should have said is if we reduce the population in Colorado, if we make half of the Colorado's population leave, then you can put it on the ballot. But, you know, that's as absurd as, I mean, that's just not going to happen. But that's what is right for the wolves. That's what's right for nature. It's not what's, yeah, I don't know. It just, just, and I, don't get me wrong, I love the fact that, there could be, I could be cruising around somewhere in Colorado and see a wolf. It'd be awesome. Every time mm -hmm. I see a wolf in Alaska, it's, it's a moment. And I remember each and every one of them. And in Alaska, being as huge as it, as it is and as wilderness driven as it is, I see wolves every year, but they're few and far between compared to bears or moose or any of the other species. Wolves are just like that really special species. So I have a really special place for them, but I think we've got to start managing, let the managers, let the wildlife biologists, let the wildlife scientists manage those populations. Don't do it by vote. That just, the other thing that threw a whole wrench in the whole thing is when they did reintroduce the Yellowstone wolves, some what, 20, 25, 30 years ago, those wolves have made it to Colorado. There was a wild pack of wolves documented in Colorado that came from that, those animals up north. So yep. why do we have to spend all this taxpayer money and all these resources when the wolves are already here and made it naturally? Now, since they made it naturally, I'm like, yeah. You know, there is nothing, nothing could be better for the elk population in Rocky Mountain National Park than a pack of wolves. Totally. Because if you drive through Rocky Mountain National Park right now, and let's say you look out through an aspen forest, there's a visible browse line as high as an elk can reach. It's a straight line in every forest that you see. Bark is chewed up all the way as high as an elk can reach. That's because there's too many elk in that park. Mm -hmm. But there's no natural predators that are going to take out the number of elk that need to be taken out for a healthy population of elk. And if you read all the stories on Yellowstone... When they reintroduced the wolves up there, they did some serious damage to that elk population. But guess what? The whole ecosystem, the whole natural habitat got way better for it. All these other spe species benefited huge because of the wolves. So I can see why wolves would be really important and awesome in Colorado. The problem is, is you just can't put a fence around Rocky National. You can't put a fence around Rocky National. <laughs> Rocky National? You can't put a fence around Rocky Mountain National Park and tell the wolves stay here and only eat these elk. They're mm -hmm. going to they're going to wander and they're going to get caught up in human 
interactions. I don't think there'll be conflicts. I don't, you know, wolf mm. attacks are so few and far between. I mean, it's probably been documented a handful of times, but, but there is going to be interactions with livestock. There's going to be interactions with people's pets. There's going to be stuff that is probably not, it's just too, too many people. And the problem in Colorado is you have the whole metro area being the voting population. You got all of rural Colorado, which doesn't even begin to match the numbers as Denver and Colorado Springs and Fort Collins and all these highly populated places that tend to lean more towards just like that. Oh, we'd love to see wolves in Colorado. They don't have to deal with them. Right. They're voting for all these people that now have to deal with this introduced situation that is that fair? I don't know. I don't think so. They did write. Well, and I don't know. They did write some of those topics into the bill. So there's a, a livestock head is lost. There's that. There's more. Um, there's some around the medical of it, especially if they're using um, deterrence, like poppers and stuff like that. And so they've they've tried to think about that. I think the CPW pushed hard enough that they finally were able to help kind of feather it through just because they knew it was coming. I mean, it's here now, right? There's, well, the, they were just released. So there's that issue. But I mean, the biologists, when you start reading about it, they think that there's probably somewhere between 100 and 150 wolves that are needed to have a sustainable like breeding population of wolves, which is a little wow. scary considering they're going to do like 30 to 50 of introductions here. And then you read about horror stories of Idaho, right? Where that went to, oh, we're going to introduce it to let's kill them all type thing. And now you can hunt them and go that way. So that's a little scary. Um, I mean, my fear is they're going to go from Colorado because it's on the northern side of the state where they're being introduced. They're going to go north to Wyoming and they're not protected in Wyoming. So that's what we've seen happen time and time again to wolves that have made it down into Colorado. So it is interesting. Um, as far as I don't have too much. I mean, Michael, you covered a lot of it. I think I did while we were talking about this, when you and I were doing all our cougar stuff, I had read this book, but there's a, a book and it's called path of the Puma. And it's more about Patagonia, but they had, um, some experts like Jim Williams, who's a Montana or at the, the time was a Montana, uh, what am I trying to say? Wildlife and parks ranger for a uh, fishing game. And he was talking to this gentleman who was writing this and he was talking about pumas. And so in relation to the human to people interactions, I'm not going to talk about pets or anything like that. But he, this is what Jim Williams said. He said, hardly anyone realizes that there are two or even three times as many cougars as wolves out in the woods and mountains. Now, the average cougar is bigger than the average wolf and consumes more wild meat than a wolf does. Cougars occasionally injure or kill humans. Wolves almost never do. Yet here we are dealing with outbreaks of near hysteria over wolves while we don't hear much at all from the general public about cougars. Why? 
mainly because the big cats are so good at not being seen. And so what's interesting is that, I mean, we've seen that here in Colorado, right? Like we've seen, there was that adolescent that went after that runner up at uh, horseshoe and the runner ended up like strangling it out, which was just like, what a story. And so it, it I don't know. I just don't know what to think, but I don't think wolves are going to have, they're not going to mess with humans. Like black bears are scared of humans here in Colorado. It's just the dogs, which brings me to my point. Finally, here in the like, I'm I'm in Littleton, so I'm close to Denver, but I'm in a suburb. They had coyotes here in in Greenwood Village and Centennial, and all that. They brought in a hunter that would go out at night with night vision and a silenced rifle and kill every one of them. Anyone, anything that he could see, they'd kill it. But yet they're voting in wolves. It's I don't know. It's just popular. You just can't manage wildlife through popular vote. Yeah. So it's not healthy for the wildlife. It's not healthy for the community. It's just, I mean, what, uh, whatever. If we're missing something, I would love the debate to have a debate about it. Yes. If we're missing something on, on this. So, um, we are definitely not the most informed on this. So, I mean, take that with a grain of salt, but yeah, if someone's out there that wants to to come on and have a thoughtful discussion, I think it'd be awesome. So, and I, more than anything, I want people to understand that I love freaking wolves. I love the fact that they could be in Colorado if it was right yeah. for them. Right, but I just don't think it is. If you just can't have your cake and eat it too, which is what is trying to happen. Right. You know, okay. and like you say, I mean, if you could put him in Rocky Mountain National Park, and I think it's close to a half a million acres. So if you get Rocky and you get the Wiminooch, those are the two biggest land masses that are not, you know, they're protected and they're, you know, not a lot of livestock, not a lot of people. It's only 265,000. Okay. So it's a quarter of a million acres. Mm -hmm. And plenty of, you know, if a wolf pack did set up shop in Rocky, I think they would stay there for a long time because there's no reason to leave. There would be no other wolves to push the wolves out because wolves are the wolves. Wolves are the, they're their own worst enemy. More Mm -hmm. wolves kill wolves than anything else. So that wouldn't happen for a long time because one pack is just going to be a pack for a long time. And then eventually the males will get kicked out and they'll create their own packs. And then you start having those, those uh, pack wars, but that would be probably several years in the making. But in the process, they just get rid of a ton of those elk, which, I mean, I don't like to see anything die, right? But that it's what happens in nature, which kind of leads me into the story behind the story, which we're going to put out, which is an upcoming thing. So stay tuned. But it's going to be kind of a cool little uh, talk into a story behind an image. Okay, I do have one more just because it fits this. So we just released this morning, so it's the 22nd of December when we're recording this. We just released uh, Michael's What's in Michael Morrow's Wildlife Cinematography Bag. And there's a question out there that just, it's a one minute ago. So this was so interesting. I always wondered what you carry out there. Do you have any other protection other than bear spray? Oh. Nope. And- <laughs> <laughs> actually i shouldn't say that um if i'm out with a lot of bears what i like more than anything is a flare 
because a flare will make a pop and it produces that fire and bears don't like it. So I'll carry flares with me. Have I ever had to use one? Nope. Have I ever had to use bear spray? Nope. Have I felt good about having bear spray in a couple of situations? You betcha. Yeah. Yeah. I Have I pulled my bear spray out of my holster? Yeah. But have I ever had to use it? No. I think if you're just smart about it and you're just reading the wildlife, and, and I spend enough time with bears that I kind of feel like I'm pretty comfortable. I mean, you can always get that rogue bear that or that bear that just has different behavior and you just can't predict it. But no, I see a lot of people carrying guns in Alaska on a lot of the trails that Eric and I will hike for moose. You see an occasional person that just feels like they have to have a gun. I don't have a problem with it. I don't really think they need it. And a lot of people probably like to carry it just because it's cool. Um, but I have seen a lot of people that don't deserve to have a gun fire a gun because of bears, but the bear was not exhibiting behavior that was going to come after a person. It was exhibiting favor, a behavior that was actually going to try to get, get a carcass of a fish. But the person didn't have a clue that this dead carcass is laying feet away from him and he's ready to pull a gun and shoot a bear because a bear wants to come eat this carcass. So that's the issue you run into with firearms out there. And I'm assuming that that's the question that it came from that. Do you carry a gun? But the answer is no. And I know a lot of people that don't even carry bear spray, which I think is not responsible. I mean, cause ultimately if a bear kills a human or maims a human, right. that bear dies. Right. Most of the time. And usually like five you know, or, six or a bear before they find the right one. Too. Exactly. That happens here a lot. Exactly. So, you know, I think it's irresponsible not to have some sort of deterrent, but bear spray and uh, flares, and they're not perfect. I mean, you get the wrong wind, you get the wrong situation, those deterrents aren't going to work either. So the biggest and bestest thing is don't put yourself in that position if you can help it, and then also have the knowledge that's required to be out there before you just go out there. Man, that got heavy, guys. <laughs> so so do you don't carry any weapons except for lightning and thunder is that what you're telling us <laughs> do you want a band-aid or do you want the ambulance ride it's <laughs> funny uh, i i think i'm done with comments for now if you do have a comment yeah, and you want us to ask it on the podcast let us know because i i think this is fun and i think we can do more of this so ask away we'll try and did I miss anything, Michael? Did it, I mean, no, I think that's everything comments. we had talked about. I don't know okay. if there's any. Did you see anything else, Eric, that we missed? No, no, that was it. I'm okay. curious to hear what other people think about the wolves. I haven't really talked to anybody. I mean, it's just me and and my thoughts is all I've ever. I haven't, like, I've never hit my neighbor up and said, hey, what do you think? I don't even know if he'd have a thought. I don't even know if he would know. So I'm curious to see what other people think. I mean, now that they're here, I mean, we just need to go film them, I guess. That's, I did get a lot of requests for Colorado Wolves I, when that I thing know. was going on. And I, I just know. never went out. I, don't, I think it was kind of like feeding or finding a needle in a haystack. And you probably should. You would have had to have known a landowner mm -hmm. to do it. And then that was something I never pursued. So, Well, and there was the – so what's funny is, I mean – I don't want to get into this too much, but what was funny is there was this whole push of like, they were trying to get rid of the ballot measure because there were wolves in Colorado that had migrated down. And so you can't reintroduce something that is already here. 
is the pot. And so there was people out in the woods. I mean, there was just, it was anarchy. Typical Colorado. Yeah. And let me just say one more thing. And I'm not, I don't have all of the details on this. I just have heard it. But, and I can't give you all the particulars on it. But what I can say is now there's going to be another ballot mission. A ballot measure on the ballot this year, this next voting cycle, for more wildlife legislation. Again, I don't think it's you don't manage wildlife by popular vote. You need to manage wildlife for managing wildlife for the habitat. Let the biologists do it. Let the scientists do it. Don't think that this major population corridor can make all these decisions for what's good for wildlife. So it's kind of, I guess my point is, is it's kind of scary that all of this could be done by vote, non-educated vote. Yeah, that was the most surprising thing for me to learn about that Colorado thing is that they put it to a vote. It's pretty wild. But. Yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, do you have anything to, to end on? I do. You made it through the whole episode with your hat on. You said it was going to get hot and you weren't sure if you could do it. It's because I got my little ears. Well, they're not little ears, but I got my ears out. But it's, the, it's getting warm. It's got all the sequins on it. You see how pretty it is? Yeah, it's Beautiful. lovely. <laughs> I I hope that you get both Eric and I want, I want a hat like that for next year. Well, it was... Oh, this is no. when I need to go incognito, <laughs> yeah. but still remain in the holiday <laughs> season. So is that what you do when you have to put out Santa's uh, gifts as you go in camo? You know, so early on in, I grew up with three brothers, two brothers. Sorry. I was one of you three. were the third. Yeah. Um, I gotta put my hat on. Hold on feel naked all of a sudden all right so i was one of three boys my poor mom right and then she had my dad and like two boy dogs and stuff anyway we were gonna catch santa one year and so we snuck out of our rooms snuck onto the roof rigged up climbing gear waited until santa came and we caught him <laughs> boy were we surprised <laughs> <laughs> Also, we got in a lot of trouble because my parents' house is a three-story house, and we were like 40 feet up, <laughs> and we're like 10 to 13 years old. Oh, gosh. We got in so much trouble. So much trouble. Uh, yeah. It's fun stuff. <laughs> that's a good story to end on. I think you've told me that one before. Oh, it's so bad. We were terrible. Well, what do you expect from three boys living in the mountains? Right? Yeah. All right. So uh, are you going to close it out for us this time, Eric? Well, once again, thanks for listening uh, to the Truth and Legends podcast. Keep submitting those questions so we have more stuff to talk about so we don't run dry here. And uh, thanks to everyone who has been watching, liking, and uh, supporting us by sharing the podcast and our videos. Um, until next time, we'll talk to you guys later. Peace.